Listen, people spiritualize revelation. They say, well, this is history and it's already happened. There has never, ever been a time in the history of the world where any plague, famine, or war took one-fourth of the earth's population. This is Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in the sixth chapter of our study of the Revelation. This chapter outlines the first of a series of judgments that will befall the earth during a seven-year period called the Tribulation. The first series of judgments are listed sequentially on a scroll, and we've looked at these in previous weeks. They include the introduction of the Antichrist, war the likes of which have never before been experienced, famine, and death. As we pick up today, Pastor Carl recaps the judgment of death as he then introduces the next two judgments, martyrdom and terror. You cannot hide from death. You cannot escape death. You cannot crawl up into a hole and cover yourself with dirt and think that you are going to somehow miss the judgment of God Almighty. God alone, by nature, is eternal. But when God made you, He made you to live forever. He made you in His image, and you will live forever either in a place called heaven or a place called hell. Heaven is forever, so is hell. It's endless, measureless, dateless. It is forever and ever, on and on and on and on. And when a man has been there 10 million years... He will not have one less second to spend. And so he is describing the turmoil that is happening. Authority was given to him. And of course, it says here, a fourth of the earth is killed through this rider. To put this in modern terms, if this were to happen in this time frame in human history, there are 7.5 billion people upon the earth, approximately. That means 1,875,000,000 people will die during this time. And death comes by the sword, famine, and pestilence. Listen, people spiritualize Revelation. They say, well, this is history and it's already happened. There has never, ever been a time in the history of the world where any plague, famine, or war took one-fourth of the earth's population. But this writer will do that. Now, what a harvest it will be for the devil. And I'm sure he'll be laughing all the way into the bank until he is thrown in the lake of fire. Now, that's the context. Let's pick up where we left off. Are you with me? Say amen. All right. Verse 9, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord? Holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe grapes when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. 
Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Now, in this portion of Scripture, we find two opposite worlds, which you can see on your note-taking outline is the title of this morning's message. John describes one world of God's saints who are in heaven, but a second world of sinners who are upon the earth. So let's first deal with the world of the tribulation saints who are in heaven. And he underscores three truths about God's saints who are in heaven. First, he describes the cost of their testimony. Notice, if you will, now verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who've been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Suddenly, the vision changes as the Lamb breaks the fifth seal. The four horsemen have ridden past John And now the fifth seal is broke, and he sees underneath the altar the souls of those who've been slain. He reveals this group of people who have been martyred for their faith. Now, in spite of all the resistance that we're going to read about during this seven-year period of people who refuse to believe, God will still have people, a number that no one can count, who will come to genuine faith. That's one of the functions of the tribulation. One is to bring Israel to faith, but also to bring Gentile nations from every tribe, tongue, and people. For instance, of the Jew, John uh, Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 30, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. That's how the Jew refers to this time frame. We call it the Great Tribulation. They call it the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved from it. When we come to the seventh chapter next time, we will see 144,000 Jewish men who are converted to Christ, and they will preach the gospel to millions. Can you imagine 144,000 Apostle Paul's preaching the gospel during this time, and a great multitude that no one can count comes to believe on the Lord Jesus. And because they refuse to give allegiance to the Antichrist, to take the mark of the beast, they will be martyred, and the methodology is by beheading. We are seeing this methodology enacted even in our day. People thought that was archaic and it would never return. It is going to return like the world has never seen it. And John says he saw underneath the altar the souls of those who've been slain. Now, we have noted that many of the idioms and symbols in Revelation are interpreted within Revelation itself. But 300 of the 404 verses in the Revelation are from the Old Testament, and not a single one is introduced, like David said or Isaiah said. Or, and so you have to have some handle on the Old Testament to understand the Revelation, because 75% of the book references the Old Testament. So he speaks here of these saints being underneath the altar. And underneath is a word that does not refer in reference to space, like they're all huddled under some altar but in terms of relationship. And so we're going to study that there's a temple in heaven. Moses, when 
Uh, Cecil D. DeMille had uh, Charlton Heston come down the mountain with a set of Ten Commandments. He should have also had him carrying a set of blueprints. Because up on the mountain, Moses was given blueprints of what the temple was like in heaven. And so he was to build the tabernacle. The writer of the Hebrews echoes this truth according to the temple in heaven. So as we work through the Revelation, we're going to see all this temple furniture. And of course, there's an altar called the brazen altar. And four times, for instance, in Leviticus uh, chapter 4, we're told the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and all the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar. And in the Old Testament imagery in the 17th chapter, God reminds them that the blood is symbolic of life, that the life is in the blood and therefore without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so these martyred saints have identified with the altar, symbolic of the blood that ultimately was cast there on Golgotha when Jesus gave his lifeblood for us. And they are martyred for their faith. Notice here, they're called souls. Now, the word is suke. And sometimes when people hear the word soul, they immediately think of some spirit floating around in heaven. But the word suke, soul, can also refer to a person himself. Some words in Greek, Hebrew, and in English can mean only one thing in every context. Other words take on a different meaning depending on how they are used. For instance, when I use the word trunk, am I referring to what's in front of an elephant, what's over a sailor's uh, shoulder, uh, what's behind a car, or what's at the base of the tree? It all depends on the context. And so when you see the word soul, very often it just refers to a person's life. For instance, in Revelation 12 and verse 11, and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their suke, their life, even when faced with death. But without knowing any Greek, you could figure that out from the context because the fact is they are given white robes according to Revelation 6 in verse 11, which means they have some sort of temporary intermediate body. Remember, the resurrection of those who died during the seven-year period happens with all of the Old Testament saints. At the rapture, the church is raised. The 70th week is dealing largely with Israel and Gentiles who have never before heard the gospel in clarity and in power. And they are raised, according to Daniel 12, at the end of the seven year. We're going to look, before we're done with Revelation, I'll give you a chart on all the resurrections that are recorded in Scripture. And they were given to each one of them a white robe. Well, a robe signifies you have to have something to hang on it. So they have some sort of an intermediate body. And so if you buried a loved one, their body is asleep in the grave. Not their soul, only their body. They are still awaiting for the body to be raised. When the Lord will come from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ will rise first. He will bring back with him from heaven those who have fallen asleep in Christ because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But when you die, if you died this afternoon and you've got loved ones who went on before you, when you see them, you will immediately recognize them, though they are not in their final uh, resurrection body, just like Moses and Elijah were recognizable on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, there are some who would say that these martyred saints represent 
all of the people throughout all of time during the entire church age because they don't want a literal seven-year tribulation period. Uh, they, 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 they're amillennial. The Messiah is not going to come. He's not going to keep his promises to Israel because the church is the new Israel and on and on it goes. And listen, that interpretation does not fit the context. These people who are given white robes, come out of the great tribulation. These are not church saints. These are tribulation saints who have been martyred. And notice, and because of the testimony which they maintained, they were giving these white robes. What a marvelous truth. The testimony. You know the word testimony. We've highlighted it before you before. It's the word maturia. You can hear our word martyr in it. These were martyrs. That was their testimony. We're going to stand up for Jesus even if it costs us our life. And the Bible says they maintained this testimony. They held on to this testimony even in the face of death. Now here's a chart that might help you to again put the order of these things. Jesus in Matthew 24 speaks of the birth pangs. Then he speaks of an event in the middle of the 70th week as Daniel places it dead center called the abomination of desolation, which starts the second half of the tribulation ending with the second coming of Christ. And what you discover here in Revelation is the events that we're going to study in these seal, trumpet, and bold judgments perfectly parallel what Jesus teaches. There's some added details that he doesn't give on the amount of uh, all of it, but it perfectly parallels what he says in regards to those events. So think about where we've been so far. Uh, for instance, we saw the white horse of deception. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. So after the church is raptured and the door in heaven is opened up, there will be many false messiahs and the epitome of all false messiahs will be the Antichrist himself. So the force First horseman represents that man of great spiritual deception. Then Jesus said, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. And so the wars and rumors of wars that Jesus speaks of pictures the red horse of war. Again, a perfect parallel. Then the Lord moves to the next trauma, the third birth pang. That is the horror of famine. He said, and in various places, there will be famine. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And so the black horse of famine comes and the hunger that he brings. Then the fourth horseman, the ashen horse, the pale horse comes. And he brings pestilence and death. Again, this corresponds to what Jesus said. For instance, in Luke, he said, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places, plagues and famine. And then in relation to the fifth seal, Jesus said this, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Remember, these saints, slaughtered, persecuted, who are identified with the altar and all that it pictured in the Old Testament concerning Yeshua, Jesus, they maintain the testimony. And that's what Jesus said people will do during this time, those who know him. 
They will maintain their testimony. They will not stop. If you were threatened with death in this service and they said, deny Christ, would you? Not if you're a real Christian. You would allow them to take your life if you couldn't defend it. A true Christian will never renounce Christ. Jesus said the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Understand, you're not saved by perseverance. Salvation is by grace. But if you are saved, you will persevere. You will continue to the end. John put it in these words. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. He's saying, look, there's people who come into the church, they give a testimony. I am a follower of Jesus. And John says, they really are not these false teachers that he addresses in that chapter because they ended up forsaking the body of Christ. They never persevered because they never had genuine salvation. Now listen, the persecution today, as bad as it is, doesn't even begin to compare to what is coming with these birth pangs. Now, these are birth pangs that begin to happen after the church is raptured. These are all birth pangs in the first half of the tribulation. Even the post-tribulationist has to recognize that. So when Hal Lindsey writes a book and he says, okay, let me tell you the number of earthquakes we had this year and this year and this year. Here's the number of families. Oh, we're in the birth pangs. We're in the first half of what Jesus is describing. Oh, no, we're not. The birth pangs unfold during the first three and a half years. You say, well, is there any significance to the growing persecution, to the growing turmoil in the world, to the days of Lot, the growing homosexual spirit, to the days of Noah, the gross immorality that is hitting our nation and our world like a tidal wave? Yes, there is. It tells you the woman is pregnant. It tells you the water is getting close to break because she's near full term. And when the rapture happens, then the birth pangs come. So that's the cost of their testimony. Secondly, notice the prayer in their hearts, the prayer in their hearts. Verse 10, and they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Again, since their murderers are still alive on the earth, these martyrs are from the tribulation period. And they cry out with a loud voice. By the way, the fact that they are crying out with a loud voice in heaven immediately reveals two errors that are taught in our day. One error is that of soul sleep. Our dear Seventh-day Adventist friends teach it. They say when you die, body, soul, and spirit live in the grave, that you are not consciously aware of anything until Jesus raises you up. And what they confuse is when God speaks of sleep, it's always in reference to the body, but never in reference to the person in that body. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. These are people who died during the tribulation, and they are very conscious in heaven, crying out to the Lord. Secondly, their testimony of crying out to the Lord also dismantles the false doctrine of purgatory. Purgatory has no biblical basis. Now, one of our dear brothers who just came back from the Philippines in our Graniteville campus, thank you, Brother Carl, for this uh, article. Um, you know, if you've been to the Philippines, just like Billy Graham years ago would have uh, a column in virtually every 
paper across America. Roman Catholic priests all across the Philippines have their little columns because you're either evangelical and God is doing a great work in the Philippines right now, or you're Catholic. And so priests will often write in the newspaper. And so this priest just came out November 2nd. The belief in purgatory, which is specifically a Catholic teaching included in the Catholic creed, says that those who die in friendship and grace with God, but who are not perfectly purified, are detained and purified there in purgatory. Then he goes on to say that this has strong biblical support, and he quotes 2 Maccabees chapter 12. Well, I hate to tell him, but 2 Maccabees is not in our Bible, and it shouldn't be in theirs either. Jesus and the apostles never, ever, ever quote the Intertestament books. Why? Because while they are historical and helpful, maybe, for what took place during those 400 years, neither Jew nor the early church have ever seen them as part of the canon of Scripture. Not to mention, they repeatedly contradict what God did give in His 66 books of the Bible. God teaches when you die, you go to heaven. Now, if you want to listen to man you can come up with four conclusions of what happens when you die. You can say you go to heaven, hell, purgatory. By the way, purgatory is a logical doctrine in Catholicism because if works help to save you, if Jesus didn't completely pay for your sin, if his shout from the cross to tell us die, it's finished, paid in full is not really true, and you have to help God because Jesus didn't do enough, then purgatory is logical. You have to suffer and be purified in the pains of purgatory. But if grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone is true, then the moment you die, you go to heaven. So you can believe man and say heaven, hell, purgatory, or annihilationism. Those annihilationists say when you die, you just get dropped in the grave, and that is it, and all consciousness ceases. Now, a man can say that. He can suppress what he knows to be true because God wrote eternity into his heart, or he can believe the Scripture. Listen, there's only two choices. You either die and go to heaven, or you die and go to Hades, which ultimately becomes the lake of fire, Gehenna, hell. And they cried out, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain? Now, while persecution is bad in this day, it's nothing compared to what is going to happen. I went to Yad Vashem, been there many times. It's the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. And the last time I went, I don't know why I hadn't seen it before, but I stopped. I mean, there's so much to see and stopped at one of the exhibits of Adolf Ekman. He was one of Hitler's men who was responsible for the death of more Jewish people, five of the six million people. And he wrote these words. I wrote them down. I shall leap in my grave for the thought that I have five million lives on my conscience is to me a source of inordinate satisfaction. He loves the fact that he took five million lives. Well, you can take that man's attitude, and multiply it 10,000 times 10,000 times, and that will be the attitude of unbelievers hunting down and murdering and butchering tribulation saints. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
Now, you read that, and maybe you're asking, listen, a Christian, even those who are martyred like Stephen, shouldn't they be praying, Father, forgive them? Is that not what Jesus did? Father, forgive them. I have no doubt that when these saints were on earth, they took Jesus' advice, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, but they're not on earth anymore. These are saints who are in heaven, and they're asking a question, and the question is not knowing God's exact schedule and what he's going to do. This is what we call an imprecatory prayer. And so you've heard of the imprecatory psalms. Uh, the, the verb imprecate means to, to call down judgment or calamity. And I know some people say, well, that doesn't sound very Christian. Now, I love C.S. Lewis, and I took a whole course on him in college with Peter Kraft, who's considered one of the leading experts in the world on C.S. Lewis. And I read a ton of books by him, but he said a lot of stupid things, and especially in reference to the imprecatory Psalms. I use his book, Mere Christianity. He was an incredibly bright man, and God certainly has used his book to get people to think about who Jesus really is. But I think he remained a baby Christian in light of some of the incredibly stupid things he said. And I won't list them all this morning. But for instance, in reference to the imprecatory Psalms and his reflections on the Psalms, he calls them terrible, contemptible, devilish, profoundly wrong, and sinful prayers. No, they are not. They are part of the Word of God. God inspired them. And they express a legitimate truth. We are commanded in Ephesians 4, as Paul quotes the prophet Hosea, be angry, but do not sin. If someone tried to seduce your little girl or give your children drugs, there would probably rise up in you a moral righteous anger, a moral outrage. That's what these saints in heaven are feeling. God's people are being butchered, beheaded by the millions. And they're asking God, how long? How long? This is not a prayer for personal revenge. It's a prayer for the vindication of who God is, that he is holy and true. In one sense, we pray it every time we say the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because with that petition comes the wrath of God Almighty. Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians said, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. They're under all this turmoil and persecution. And Paul says, look, they're going to get their day. It's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. That's the essence of eternal life. To those who do not obey or respond to the gospel of our Lord Jesus, what will happen? These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. God's martyrs in heaven are acknowledging God who is both holy and true. And tomorrow, when we conclude our message entitled, Two Opposite Worlds, We'll look at the seventh seal judgment, which addresses a fear that will befall the earth unlike anything ever before experienced. To listen again to today's look at the sixth and seventh seal judgments, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV18 entitled Two Opposite Worlds. Search the Scriptures is dedicated to leading people to Christ as well as growing existing Christians in their walk with God. If you can help support this ministry, please call 877-787-7478 and inquire about becoming a foundation partner or about making a one-time gift. Thank you. Tomorrow we break the seal on the seventh judgment. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.